it's uh, one of the guys, along with Mike Wallace, that started 60 Minutes. He had a long and treasured history in journalism. The joke used to be, what do you get when you cross a gorilla and a math teacher? You get a hairy reasoner. <laughs> Think about it. But not too long. I picked up a piece that he wrote about Christmas. I don't know that we'd necessarily agree with it all, but certainly the sense of it we'd all agree with. He says this, The basis for this tremendous annual burst of gift buying and parties and near hysteria is a quiet event that Christians believe actually happened a long time ago. You can say that in all societies there has always been a midwinter festival and that many of the trappings of our Christmas are almost violently pagan. But you come back to the central fact of the day and the quietness of Christmas morning, the birth of God on earth. It leaves you only three ways of accepting Christmas. One is cynically, as a time to make money or endorse the making of it. One is graciously, the appropriate attitude for non-Christians who wish their fellow citizens all the joys to which their beliefs entitle them. And the third, of course, is reverently. If this is the anniversary of the appearance of the Lord of the universe in the form of a helpless babe, it is a very important day. It's a startling idea, of course. My guess is that the whole story that a virgin was selected by God to bear his son as a way of showing his love and concern for man is not an idea that has been popular with theologians. It's a somewhat illogical idea. And theologians like logic almost as much as they like God. It's so revolutionary a thought that it probably could only come from a God that is beyond logic and beyond theology. It is a magnificent, it has magnificent appeal. Almost nobody has seen God and almost nobody has any real idea of what he is like. And the truth is that among men the idea of seeing God suddenly and standing in a very bright light is not necessarily a completely comforting and appealing idea. But everyone has seen babies, and most people like them. If God wanted to be loved as well as feared, he moved correctly here. If he wanted to know his people as well as rule them, he moved correctly here. For a baby growing up learns all about people. If God wanted to be intimately a part of man, he moved correctly. For the experiences of birth and familyhood are our most intimate and precious experiences. So it comes beyond logic. It is either all falsehood or it is the truest thing in the world. It's the story of the great innocence of God the baby. God in the form of man. It has such a dramatic shock toward the heart that if it were not true for Christians, nothing is true. Good statement. I want to use that as a backdrop from which we can launch into a story about a guy named Sam. I want you to meet Sam this morning. His name hasn't changed. There's no need to protect the innocent, no possibility of protecting the guilty. In reality, Sam represents a situation of which none of us are innocent. Sam, you see, represents mankind specifically 20th century mankind, urbane, sophisticated, civilized, avant-garde, 
Western mankind. We think that we're the ultimate in everything. Sam thought he was the ultimate in everything. What we're going to do today is eavesdrop on his secret and not-so-secret musings and conversations. Through the miracle of imagination, we will witness his dreams and read his thoughts. Through the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit, my prayer is that we will have renewed within us the conviction of Christ's divinity on this Sunday before Christmas. And also that we will witness, the, that we will see for the first time, some of us anyway, <clears throat> the implications of his divinity and even yield to his lordship. Here's the opening scene. Sam, Sam is exercised. He's angry. Quite frankly, he's just ticked off. He's just finished talking on the phone with his sister, who's a believer, and inevitably the conversation has led to that subject, that subject again. Christmas season was the occasion. Angels were the point of aggravation. And the divinity of Christ was the issue. Listen in as he rehashes things. First about angels. Here's Sam's thinking. Here's Sam venting himself. How archaic. How absolutely archaic and ridiculous. Some modern minds are certainly gullible. First, there's no such thing as angels. It's leftover baggage from an earlier civilization. Secondly, this Christmas story stuff is too patent convenient. Look at this fable. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, oh boy. And the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified, I guess so. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you great, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's Christ the Lord. Come on. Sort of Pollyanna, isn't it? Sam reasoned. All lived happily ever after. Hey, has anybody read the headlines lately? How can you believe this stuff? Angels? Come on. Jesus, divine? I hardly think so. A good teacher, maybe. But divine? Sam turns, goes, turns in and goes to bed. But his subconscious mind doesn't turn itself in. Subconscious mind keeps, keeps him awake, actually. He tosses and he turns and he's fighting off what he wants most, sleep. His mind is a jumble of reaction and rejection and inquisitiveness. Finally, he slumbers, but he also dreams. And he dreams very vividly. The scene in one of his dreams is that of himself as a 13-year-old in a Sunday school class, listening to that familiar story, this particular one about some of Jesus' friends, particularly Mary and Martha, and their brother, a guy named Lazarus. The story must have been deeply imprinted in his mind as a youth because it comes to him in his dream in vivid detail. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been there, my brother would, have, would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again at the resurrection in the last day. Jesus said to her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you're the Christ, 
the Son of God who has come into the world. There it is again, Sam thought as he awoke with a start. Someone else linking Jesus to God, trying to make him divine. Sam remembered some teaching from his Sunday school years. He was raised in the church. He remembered what this term Son of God was supposed to mean. It was more than just family lineage. It wasn't like God begat a son like I've begot a son and some of you have begotten sons. No. The term Son of God is a technical term, a special expression. It's a reference to intimacy in a relationship of oneness. God the Father and God the Son share in everything. They share in likeness. They share a deep sense of intimacy. They are one and yet they're separate from one another. They share the same rights and privileges. Jesus was equal to God, still is. He also knew the term Mary used, I believe you're the Christ. He knew that that was the Greek equivalent to Messiah, which meant deliverer. It had divine connotations. Sam thought to himself, hmm, pretty high marks for a man who was just a good man trying to do well. What to make of it? Sam rationalized. Where did these women get off linking him as the son of God? Well, they had all been emotionally triggered. Their brother had just died. Maybe that explains it. But evidently still thinking about the same thing later, he mentioned it to his wife. Her response as a new believer was something like this. But Sam, I just heard someone at church say that even Jesus' enemies acknowledge his divinity. Sam's a little unsteadied by this. He wasn't expecting this kind of response from his wife. So he shoots back at her, okay, name one. Well, eagerly to respond, sincerely as she could do, as sincerely as she could, she reached for her Bible class notes and her Bible. Here it is in Matthew, she said. It has to do with Jesus on the cross and what happened when he died. Listen, Sam, let me read it for you. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Unaware of the struggle going on within Sam, his wife inadvertently added some more fuel to the fire. In fact, she said, those who believed him to be divine even included demons. Here, look, Sam, Matthew chapter 8. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, Two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Hmm. She gave Sam a little more than he was prepared to handle. He wasn't sure how to respond. He had no response. He tried to wave it off as a joke. Quietly and quickly left for work as soon as he could. For a while, he forgot all about the issue, getting absorbed in the budget items and bottom lines of business. But at lunch, he found it irresistibly compelling his mind once again. Almost involuntarily, he blurted out to one of his friends and work associates with whom he was eating lunch that day, a guy named Jack. He said, hey, Jack, you don't take all this Christmas stuff seriously, do you? And Jack responded, absolutely, Sam, absolutely. Sam's heart sank. Oh, no. He's one of them, too, he thought. Sam decides to challenge. Isn't it a bit preposterous? 
He follows with a two or three minute tirade, a combination of emotional reaction and intellectual reasoning. Jack sits there, unruffled, warmly, tactfully, kind look on his face, offering no response at all until Sam is completely done. And then Jack does respond with a question. Hey, Sam, do you believe in God? Sam answers affirmatively, and this response draws a promise from Jack. Good, I'm glad you believe in God, Sam. Look, I don't have the references in front of me right now, but let me do some homework, and I'll bring you something to read, okay? Fair enough? <laughs> what could he say? Sam says, sure. I mean, you got it. You can't act closed-minded. Wouldn't be right, right? Goes against the grain of being open and honest. The next day, Jack hands Sam a marked New Testament, marked with and ready referenced with what God had said about Jesus. Sam didn't have time right then during the workday to pop open the Bible and begin to read these references, but at his break in the middle of the afternoon, he started. He read a couple of passages. Matthew 3, for one. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And the voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then another reference was Mark chapter 9, starting with verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them to a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were all so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Sam hadn't requested it, but Jack threw in some other references too. Jesus on Jesus. That is, some things Jesus had to say about himself, particularly about his works. The accounts dealt with various circumstances, but they centered on the same issue, the divinity of Christ, as often questioned by the Pharisees. Sam read with a very strange combination now of anxiety as well as interest. First, he read some words from Jesus himself. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. And my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. I testify about myself. My testimony is not valid. Or if I testimony about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in my favor. And I know that his testimony about me is valid. You sent to John, and he testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it to you that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light. 
and you chose for a time to enjoy this, the, his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the very work that the Father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. Elsewhere in John's Gospel, John chapter 10 to be exact, he read these words. Many of them said he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, These are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Then came the Feast of Dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple and the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me. Elsewhere, John, uh, Sam read this. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. Sam didn't realize it, but his antagonism and his antagonistic attempts to disallow Christ being divine were turning into a quest of sorts, that of an honest seeker. He started out trying to disprove something. Now he finds himself trying to prove it. After time for his thoughts to percolate, he even dared, even desired, to attend church with his wife. He mused, that ought to turn up some more information to help settle this issue. And indeed it did. Testimony this time came from the apostles. These testimonies were disarmingly distinct. Nathaniel's was short, sweet, and to the point. There's no, there was no wiggle room at all in deciphering what he meant. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Thomas's was no less pungent. After he saw the risen Christ, he said before him, he said, My Lord and my God. Then there were these words of Peter's. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Sam thought, well, okay, so much for when things were going relatively well. Jesus was almost a folk hero when Peter made this claim. Would Peter feel the same way when it was, when it was not so popular to do so? So Sam began to read Peter's letters. Knowing that he was martyred, he was looking for any disclaimer. Instead he found this in Peter's last words to the church. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you, are, you will always be able to remember these things. Here's what really caught Sam. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about this power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. How about others who had died for the faith? Scanning the New Testament later, Sam found this from the Apostle Paul his last will and testament. 
in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead. Sounds like divinity to me. And in view of his appearing and his kingdom, sounds like divinity to me, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them great number of, a great number of teachers who say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, title of divinity, the righteous judge, a title of divinity, will award me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Well, maybe I don't need to tell you this, but I will anyway. The scriptures now began to release all sorts of information to Sam. For the first time in his life, he began to see the scriptures as more than detached, unsubstantiated, subjective opinions. Jesus' words about himself helped in that discovery. Jesus said, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. If you believe Moses, you'd believe me. For he wrote about me. The Old Testament scriptures alone, for that's what Jesus was talking about, were objective truth about him as divine, about him as from God. Well, now Sam was excited. He realized that this information was not merely limited to the Old Testament. He could read that and learn about Jesus there as well, but he had the advantage of the New Testament too. Both were witnesses of Christ. God in the flesh. Well, you can well imagine the confirmation Sam felt when, as he read the Bible, he came across descriptive names and titles attributed to Jesus. In fact, he was so impressed with this, he began to make a list of them. Names for Jesus used in the Bible. Righteous one. Sounds like divinity to me. Master. Governor. Truth. In the Bible, Jesus is called the true vine. Consolation. He's called the bread, the door, the savior of the world. He's referred to as the resurrection, as shepherd, king, light, prophet. Head, rock, bridegroom, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus was all of this plus. Now, even to Sam, the skeptic. The question that won't go away is this. How did Sam change? People saw the change in him over time. And many of them were a part of the reason. They had prayed for him. They lived the life before him. They spoke up. But most importantly, the Holy Spirit used their role and the written word to change his life forever. 
Jesus told us expressly what the Spirit's role would be in the process of mankind finding God. He will bear witness of me. You see the beauty here? The Trinity. God the Father had a function. God the Son had a function. God the Holy Spirit has a function. And they all function in their area of responsibility. And we have perfect unity, perfect oneness. We have a perfect life made perfect by Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit according to the will of God. When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, Jesus said he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Many of us have come through different processes, through different circumstances, different than Sam's, but many of us have come to understand in head and heart the result of Jesus Christ being divine and coming to earth. This church has existed for a hundred years, and as Jesus should tarry, we hope to exist for however long it will be before he comes again, bearing witness of the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. We could open this up for testimonies and have many of them. Many other people who were maybe like Sam at one point in time, in the sense of not believing or in the sense of being lost, but they've, whereas they had been lost, they've also been found. I've asked one of them to come and share with you this morning his own testimony. Keith Swenson, would you please come? Share with us how Jesus changed your life, how you determined in your own heart that he was divine. You have, uh, when you go back to uh, Christmas time, there we go, uh, do you guys have a favorite Christmas? One that you can go back to in your mind and say, you know, this was one of the, one of the better, one of the best Christmases ever. Um, let me tell you about a couple Christmases. Uh, one was uh, actually we were living up in uh, northwestern Wisconsin. My dad was a dairy farmer, and it was a Christmas uh, around well Christmas of 1964, and uh, we had you know gone through the Christmas story at church, and I asked my mom. I said, "Well, what is you know?" this baby Jesus, you know, how can I accept the baby Jesus as my personal savior? And so she flipped the light on um, so dad could see the light blinking in the house from the barn, knowing that there was something going on in the house, so he quit milking, came inside, and I don't know if he ever got the milking done that night, but, you know, that was a very special Christmas, 1964. Through the uh, course of the next few years and into high school, uh, you know, as we uh, heard in the message this morning, um, you know, I had all this, all the scriptures memorized. I was in Awanas, you know, I memorized all the most verses in Awanas, and uh, I was in, you know, a singing group in high school, and, you know, I thought I was doing all these things right. You know, growing up in those days, it was Sunday school, church, Sunday night, uh, church Wednesday night prayer meeting, so it was like you know going through the motions. But you know, I guess that was the thing to do back then, and perhaps for some of you is the thing to do now. 
so after um, you know my high school years and getting into college, uh, you know the scriptures I didn't care about them. I didn't care about Jesus. I didn't care about God. I didn't care about going to church. You know, I was done. You know, this this is it. And of course, um, when you have people praying for you, things happened. So the second Christmas I'd like to talk to you about is 1983. Um, I was living up in the cities, and you know, I still had about a six-hour drive going down to where my parents live for Christmas. And it was at that time that I didn't remember Christmas. In fact, I didn't um, remember how I got to my parents' place, house. Um, it was the Christmas of, um, I had gotten into cocaine, of alcohol, marijuana, you know, any drug that you mentioned. So Christmas of 1983, I have no idea, and to this day, I don't know what I received, what I gave, or anything like that. So that was a very different Christmas for me. Uh, and what transpired after that kept you know, going downhill. Um, and for those of you who have tried or experienced, or maybe you're dealing with that today, drugs and alcohol, you know, there is no high. Uh, it, it doesn't work. You know, we can talk to you about that all day long, but there is no high, there is no self-worth, there is no identity, uh, there is no God, there is no idol, there is no make me feel good. You know, it's all a lie. Um, after that Christmas, things, you know, continued to get worse. So um, it was uh, February 23rd, uh, 19, 1984, excuse me, Christmas 1983, 1984. Um, I was driving up uh, 35 out of Burnsville and got to the uh, Minnesota Bridge. And this was after about a three-day binge on cocaine. And uh, I stopped the car on the bridge and I was ready to hand my life and jump off. And I don't know if any of you are at that point today, but there's hope. If you're ready to jump, if you're ready to give up, there's hope. I started crying, and, and the next thing I know, the Holy Spirit said, come back to Jesus. Come back to Jesus. I knew how in my mind, I knew how from growing up to do that, but I've never experienced the gentle shepherd before. I called up a couple of treatment places and they said, Keith, we've had a cancellation. We have one opening. And I drove the car there and that was the best uh, 10 days of my life was uh, in treatment. It doesn't end there, it gets better. <laughs> Through those uh, next few years and into where I'm at today, when we hear about Sam this morning, maybe some of us 
are like Sam today or have seen ourselves like Sam before, but the Holy Spirit is alive um, through this Christmas season when you look at the manger. Is this your Savior? (laughs) Or is it just something that you're celebrating every year? Jesus will carry you through. Jesus loves you. And if there's anyone here today that thinks that there isn't hope, there is hope. And maybe perhaps today, the Christmas of 2013 could be your Christmas of finding out who this baby Jesus is. Thank you. Pardon me. I realize that um, many here have heard the message many, many, many times. So had Keith. If we're not vigilant, Satan will take us down. My counsel to you is to recommit, reconsecrate. You say, I'm close with Jesus. It's okay. Let's reaffirm it. There may be someone here who doesn't know him. And I want you to know that before you leave this sanctuary today, you could turn your doubts into something very affirmative by giving Jesus the benefit of the doubt and asking him into your life. And first of all, I'd like to pray with those that, are, that might be in that situation. Bow with me, would you please? My friend... If you feel a need to give your life to Jesus Christ today, if you're moved, more than likely, because there's been a lot of prayer for this message, more than likely it's more than just emotion. More than likely it's the Holy Spirit calling you. If you'd like to respond to Jesus Christ today, do it now. You say, what do I do? Well, let me tell you, you'll be pleased to know you don't have to say anything or sign anything. You don't have to get up in front of anybody. All you've got to do is tell Jesus you want him. Why don't you tell him that right now in the privacy of your own heart? Lord Jesus, I want you as my Lord and Savior. I want you as my Lord and Savior. Please forgive my sin. Cleanse me. Make me yours. If you've prayed a prayer like that, I'd like you to take another step because we want to help you begin to grow. Circle your name on your connection card. Would you do that? We'll get in touch with you. We'll talk about it. We'll share more scripture. We'll help you begin to grow. This is very, very important. For those who are in the process of recommitting, reaffirming, let's pray. Father, we're human. And we 
are embarrassed to admit to you what we can do in our, in, in our human moments when we're unguarded. But we have made a commitment to you. We reaffirm that commitment right now. Lord Jesus, we don't use the word Lord lightly here. Master, ruler, Master, Ruler, Lord over our lives, we reaffirm our faith today. We are yours. We understand why you came to bear the sin of the world, including ours. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for forgiving our sins and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. We recommit ourselves to you this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. We're going to wait upon you for the Lord's tithe and your offering right now and your connection card. If you're a guest this morning, we failed to mention this earlier, but if you're a guest, we ask everyone every Sunday to fill out a connection card. So don't feel embarrassed by putting yours in the offering plate. We ask everyone to do it. You can share prayer requests on that card. You can share other needs or concerns you have. We take them seriously. We'll wait upon you for the Lord's tithe and your offering and your connection card right now. And I'll be back in just a moment.